Gracious Lord, we bless you for uh, your presence among us in our midst, that you've sent your son, our Lord Jesus, who uh, took all of our pains, the man of sorrows, and he knows the hurts, he knows um, the, the heavy things that we carry on our heart. Lord, as we uh, come and study your word, we pray that you would lift up any weights on us today, that we'd be able to hand them off to our Savior, um, who's able to bear them, who invites us, says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are once again in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11. There's some Bibles on the table. If you don't have one already, um, we've talked over the last couple of weeks about the nature of faith and the, the fact that we have, fittingly with the, the theme in the um, worship today as well, we have eyes. We're able to see, not with the eyes of the body, but with the eyes of faith, the eyes of the heart, which have been, have been enlightened and illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Last week, we started getting into uh, some of the first um, uh, exemplars of faith. We looked at Abel and Enoch and Noah and just started talking about Abraham and Sarah. We'll have more to say about him in a minute before uh, we got into this interlude about being sojourners and exiles. We had a really good spirited conversation last week in reflecting on that, the fact that wherever we are, whenever we are, we're pilgrims, sojourners, and exiles. And that's where we're going to pick up today and, and continue with that section. So let me start again with verse 13 of Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Okay. Now, part of what uh, the preacher is speaking to here, and we touched on this a little bit last week, is that he's, he's preaching, um, in all likelihood, to pilgrims, to Christians who are living in Rome. Rome was the capital of the empire. Rome was the eternal city. And for many people, they derived their status, their, their sense of selfhood, from the fact that they're a citizen of Rome. That's what makes them great. The preacher wants to push back on that and say, wait a second, no, your greatness comes not from your um, earthly citizenship, but from your heavenly citizenship. And even though you are sojourners and exiles, which in that culture would have rendered them utterly powerless, because without any land without any basis of security, they are, uh, they, they've got nothing. But he says, no, no, no. When you think you have nothing in the eyes of the world, in fact, you have everything because you are a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. So I say number two on your handout here. Pilgrims and exiles derive their status and security from their heavenly homeland. That's where we have that security, not from anything that the world could offer, not from our bank accounts, not from our 401ks, not from, from our land, but from the fact that we belong to that heavenly citizenship, the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jesus says in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit, what? The earth. The earth. The whole new creation belongs to those who are meek now, which is to say those who are powerless, those who, who in the eyes of the world don't have anything. Jesus says, oh, wait a second. In the age to come, the whole physical new creation is yours. Similarly, speaking also of Abraham in Romans 4, Paul writes that for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
So even if in this life we feel like we're lacking the resources and the security that the world has to offer, even so, you have that unshakable foundation, the city with foundations of the new Jerusalem, the eternal city of God. That's where we base our security. And to me, this is something that I think you know, runs so counterculturally because there is so many things in this life that we want to base our security in. And uh, I say that you can really tell who someone, who or what someone's God is when it gets taken away. Right? When there are those, you know, just death throes of, ah, how could it be? You, know, you heard it from Purdue fans this week. <laughs> Sorry, we don't have any Purdue fans in here. But they won't acknowledge it now. Um, but when, when uh, you have based your life on any other foundation, and this is just what Jesus says, right? That uh, the, the, uh, the wise man builds his house on the foundation of rock, right? And when the storms come, because they always will, still the house is standing. But if you don't build on the rock, you build it on sand, which is, which is to say if you, you build it on all sorts of other foundations of false security offered by this world, when the storms come as they will, then you wash out to time. So we have that foundation as pilgrims and sojourners in the heavenly kingdom, the, the city of God. Second thing I want to say about this uh, paragraph, this part of it, is uh, it says, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let me hear you say prepared. 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 This is such a rich biblical image, prepared. And when you start looking for it, you see it showing up again and again. It's in the mouth of our Lord in several places. In particular, I'm going to just highlight two really pivotal, um, well-known passages. The one is when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. And he'll speak to the sheep, and he'll say to them in Matthew 25, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom, what? Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. From before creation was even made, already the Father was preparing the kingdom for his subjects, for his citizens, for his saints, for you and me. What a beautiful thought, right? Think about the, the, the times that you really go into great preparation, how it just can be a, a labor of love when you know that you've got somebody, you, you've got a visitor coming, you've got a guest coming, and you're just trying to get everything just so, get it just right, because, because you're, you're filled with that love and the affection for the visitor. How much more for our Lord, what he's preparing, getting everything just, oh, they're going to be here soon. I want to get it just right. Jesus says in John 14, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And there's a, a lovely allusion there, too. It fits in with the, the theme, I think that was last week when we talked about the Samaritan woman and Christ as our bridegroom. <clears throat> when Jesus talks about going to prepare a place, it has echoes and allusions to Jewish um, uh, bridal practice, matrimonial practice, where the bridegroom would go and prepare the home beforehand that he and his bride would live in. They wouldn't be married until the home had been built, had been established. Then, after being married, he would take her in order that they might be together. And Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, is saying, hey, listen, I am going to prepare a place for you. That where I am, you, the bride of Christ, might be also prepared. Prepared like a bride preparing for his wife. For a bridegroom preparing for his bride. Like a beloved preparing for his love. That's what we have here. Oh, rich, rich image that the preacher is bringing out here. 
prepared for them a city. That's what he has for you and me. So now he's going to pick up from there and continue on with the story of Abraham in verses 17 and following. So let's read verses 17 to 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. For each of these guys, for Abraham and for the patriarchs and Joseph, what we see here is is men who are walking by faith and not by sight, who have this confidence so strong in God and his promises that they're even, as Abraham did, really in many ways the paradigm of the faithful one, even willing to offer up the son. Now, let's be honest for a minute. How many of you at times, hearing that story of Abraham ready to take Isaac and sacrifice him, how many of you have been a little bit troubled by that story? Am I the only one? Okay. I mean, it's like, wait a second, Lord. Like, it's all this buildup. You're going to have this son, this son of promise. Really me? I'm so old? Yes, I promise. And through him, you know, um, all the nations are going to be blessed, all the families of the earth. Like, oh, great. And then the son comes in. Yes, you know, credits roll, right? And then it's like, you hear the record scratch. Oh, by the way, go and sacrifice him. It's like, wait, what? But Abraham, and this is why he's such a man of faith, as the preacher brings out. Abraham believes so firmly in the promise of God. He's like, I don't get it. Don't know what you're doing. But I know that you are the God of resurrection. God who can give life to the dead. And so, all right, here we go. I mean, it's a moment filled with such poignant pathos as they're, they're walking up the hill and there's, you know, Isaac is saying to his father, Father, I, I see the, the lamb for the burnt, or no, I see the, the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb, my son. Oh, every time. But he trusted in the promise of and I put it here on number four on your handout. Abraham's faith, Abraham's faith, as an example, model to us, encourages us to orient our lives around resurrection rather than rationality. See, we are so prone to want to cling to life. Uh, the uh, teacher, writer, Robert Farr Capon often says that we always want to cling to a life that God can't use rather to, than to let go into a death that he can And his point is that God is the God of death and resurrection. And many times we think, okay, I've got to cling on to this thing that's dying. And whether it be our frail mortal bodies, the way that people will will just cling to life to the bitter end rather than relinquishing it. Sometimes it's clinging on to a a vocation or career when they know the time has passed. But this is what I need. This is where I I have my security. When instead it's a, a time for death and resurrection. There's so many different ways in which we think, I've got to cling on to this life. And the Lord's like, let go of the life that I cannot use and instead embrace, let go into the death that I can because he's the Lord of death and resurrection. Right? 
To, to trust in resurrection rather than rationality is a scary thing, but it's ultimately a life-giving thing. Yeah, David. I can remember having a discussion with my father hmm. on this because it really bothered me. Yeah. It's like... I'm Especially okay. as you guys were walking up the mountain and you were, were carrying the wood. The <laughs> <laughs> there was no sheet inside. I was getting worried. <laughs> and I can remember him just saying, you know, he's a man of the word and just saying, you have to understand God, Abraham trusted. Yes, the person of God, but he trusted the word of God. Yeah. And he said, in this, in this child, I thought, is he going to kill him? And then they're going to give him another child? I was reasoning, right. I was ra no, yep. rationalizing. He said, no. God promised that in this child, all the nations of the earth would be. In this child, inevitably, Jesus will come. So that, even if he did kill him, God would have to raise it. Yeah. Amazing faith to me. And that's when I finally got it when he said, no, it had to be. Mm. It had to be. Oh, you saying that makes me think of the, the story of the, the faith of the Canaanite woman. Yeah. And the one who, you know, her, her daughter is suffering, demon-possessed. And, Lord, will you heal him? And at first, Jesus just gives, gives her the silent treatment. Nothing. Comes again. She keep, keeps at it. And, yeah. oh, Lord, please, do, do something. And then, Finally, you know, she's a Canaanite. She's a Gentile. And all the disciples are pestering Jesus like, would you do something about this? Right? This is, this is not good. This is not good for the brand. This is bad PR for us, right? <laughs> but instead, Jesus is like, oh, I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's a poof, strike two. And then she keeps at it. She comes after him. Please, Lord, please. And that's when he relinquishes. No. It's in, that's when he says, ah, it's not good to take the, the children's food and give it to the dogs. Like, oh my gosh! Like, strike three, you're out! But no. And she does this incredible move. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs from their master's table. She was holding him to his promise. She said, so abounding is your grace. And Luther has, is great on this. He says, uh, in, in effect, that she has, she has our Lord by the lapels, right? <laughs> She's got him cornered. And Luther says, know this, there's nothing that he would rather have be the case. That this is exactly what God delights in, is for us to be put into the corner where it's, it's, it's God's promise or bust. It's a scary place to be. Much rather cling to, cling to our, our vision of life, our expectations of life, rather than to let go into the death that he might be able to bring forth a resurrection from. Yeah, Carl. Well, you know, it, it, uh... When I was young, I remember the education in your mind seemed to be the big thing. You know, you have to have an education. You have to learn these things. Went through parochial school. You know, learn these things. Well, I'm an age now where I got one foot in a grave and the other on a banana peel. <laughs> you know, and it becomes something else. It becomes a soul thing. Yeah. The body is not all that I am. And my mind certainly isn't all that I am. Right. But my soul knows truth when it hears it. Sure. I should. My, my soul is what is connected to God. And when I hear, you know, when I get that wow moment, yeah. you know, when somebody says something, it's because I already know that. Right. My sheep hear my voice. And I hear them. Yeah. And it's my soul. It's not my mind. You know, my mind is becoming more and more in line with my soul now. But as time goes by, uh, be still mm. and know mm -hmm. I am God. 
prayer and meditation become a bigger thing. Sure. Right, exactly. To attune our ears to be able to, to hear I the I remember a retreat I went on, and the retreat master challenged us to go into a closet and sit there. Well, 30 seconds in that closet, I was sort of unused of being with myself. Right. With my soul. Right. That I, I couldn't wait to get out of there. Right. It took time, it takes practice. It's like learning to play a violin. You know, you may have the idea, I'd like to play a violin. I'm a violin player, but until I practice, sure. I'm not ever going to be a violin player. One of my kids said to me yesterday, Beatrice, um, that uh, she said, oh, Daddy, I'm so bored. You know, just a quiet Saturday afternoon. I'm so bored. And I said, well, God bless you. <laughs> you know what, sister? It is so hard to be bored in our world today. There's always something to distract yourself with. There's always something else just to, to keep you occupied. To be now, I'm I'm dad. I'm dispensing some serious wisdom here. <laughs> she gives me all these. <sighs> but someday, someday, she'll be sitting in a Bible study and she'll. I remember a conversation I had with my father. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. She was carrying wood up a hill. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, th and then as far as the other uh, ones go, I mean, with each of these, there's just these through line that um, for each, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they all encourage us to retain that vision of God's greater future. God's greater future. Not our own uh, human visions, but instead, for each of them, they were looking uh, forward to what the Lord was going to do. Uh, we saw this with, um, with Jacob. When the time drew near that Israel, that is to say Jacob, must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Don't bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. In other words, in the promised land. See, I'm still trusting the promise. Don't leave me here in Egypt, but take me ahead to the promised land, because I know God's going to be faithful there. Likewise, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear. Both these cases so interesting. There's that sense of their, their dying words, their, the, the last legacy they're leaving is the fact that I want to trust in this promise that, Lord, you are going to bring something greater. Uh, this, my death does not put an end to your promise, right? Nothing is going to be able to break that. He's faithful. That's the faith that we see in these exemplars. All right, but then let's go to the next great example of faith. So we've got Abraham, we've got the patriarchs, and now you can see he's almost moving just kind of chronologically, right? So now we get into Exodus. And of course, Exodus is especially going to highlight the life of Moses. And there's really three aspects to it, but let me um, read this, this paragraph. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Listen to this. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. 
Now, it's important to recognize, not just in, in this paragraph, but throughout this, is that as the preacher is mentioning and talking about all these great examples, of course, he has one eye on the Old Testament and their stories, but he's got the other eye on his audience, right, on the people he's speaking to. And so in each of these things that he's lifting up about Moses, at the same time, he knows that it's especially applicable and relevant to his hearers. So how is that? Well, number six on your handout, <clears throat> like Moses, the faithful of the preacher's own day, time of Hebrews, the faithful choose to cast their lot with God's family overall. Moses chose, rather than, you know, he, he, he could just uh, continue to live the good life in Pharaoh's household and be part of that. But no, he recognizes that his true family, his true identity is as a member of the people of God, part of the, the household of God. Now for the, the preacher's hearers, they were faced with a similar kind of dilemma. As they are encountering, encountering persecution and opposition for the sake of the name of Christ, well, what should I choose? It'd be a lot easier for me to relinquish that identity or at least to downplay it and instead, you know, uphold the fact that, hey, I'm, I'm a Roman. I'm just like one of you. Preachers challenging them say, like Moses, follow in his footsteps and let your, the name of Christ be your constitutive identity, your foundational sense of who you are, being part of this family, flawed and broken and sinful as they are, that this is your, your first family. Jesus, of course, speaks this word, and it's a hard word to hear, he says it in, in Luke 14, for instance. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And, you know, as preachers, we're, we fall over ourselves quick to say, you know, when this comes up on Mother's Day or something like that, like, oh, gosh, okay. Uh, Jesus. Again, bad PR, Jesus. This is not good. But we understand what he's saying there. He's emphasizing and stressing the fact that, listen, even your biological family, much <coughs> as you love them, as much as we love our families today, it was even more the case in, in that day and age, right? I mean, this was strong in the culture. He's saying nothing should break you from the bonds that you have to your first family of faith. That's what comes before everything else. And more to the point, your, your first Lord, right? That you belong to me. That's what takes priority over everything else. And... Boy, is this still a relevant word for us today, right? We're not in anything like the situation that the, the um, preacher's hearers were in first century Rome. But still, we can feel as Christians like, no, we're the outsiders. That to be a Christian, to be a member of a church is kind of a weird thing. And as I like to say, the answer is yes, you are weird, right? You need to remember that. Our kids need to remember that. You're weird. You're going to be weirder still. All the more reason for us. To, to be part of the family of God, to recognize this is why I need this community, so I need this fellowship of believers, so that I'm able to remain steadfast in the midst of it. It's a lot of forces from, from the world that would make us want to relinquish that Christian identity, but that's always foremost. That's who we are above and beyond everything else, uh, before, even, yeah, before even our family. So that's the first point, the uh, point of connection with Moses and the lives of the faithful today. Secondly, number seven on your handout, flipping the page over. Like Moses, the faithful are not fearful in the face of visible foes. So he says, you know, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ 
already with that eye toward God's promise, greater than the treasures of Egypt, he was looking to the reward. He left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Of course, this calls back to the beginning of the chapter when the preacher had said, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of what? Things not seen. We walk by faith and not by sight. And Jesus often stresses this for his disciples because he knows that when you're faced with something right in front of you, it's a lot more natural for us to be afraid of that and to, to be filled with fear over the things that are visible, the things that are seen. Jesus says, Matthew 10, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Keep your lords in proper order, right? Remember, who is the one who is actually Almighty God? Uh, he's the one whom we ought to fear. N not any king's edict, but instead, the king of kings, creator of all things. Then thirdly, number eight here, like Moses, the faithful keep the feast. Bear this in mind. When he, he brings out how by faith he, Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the, the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Okay, once again, th he, this is both just a, a fact from Moses' own history and the history of the Israelites in the exile, but he also has an eye toward the contemporary hearers. Because when the Christians, then this isn't so much emphasized now, but when the Christians would celebrate the Lord's Supper, they called that supper Pesach, Passover. They said, now the Passover has been fulfilled as we celebrate the, the feast of the Lord's body and blood, the Eucharist. Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now we keep the feast of the Lord's Supper. And, you know, this is where I like to talk with the kids about this because we're just so spoiled. We take for granted, like Sunday, almost everybody has Sunday, y'all. And, you know, church is at 9.30. Sometimes folks say, it's too early. <laughs> all right, all right, 9.30, it's too early. Fair enough, I know, it can be hard to get up. The clock moves forward and everything else. But uh, for Christians in that day and age, maybe you don't need me to tell you, they didn't have Sunday off, okay? They celebrated Sunday as the Lord's Day, and eventually, and in Western civilization, as the, the church and Christendom took hold, you know, the weekend becomes this thing. It was not there in Rome in the first century. So if you were a Christian and you wanted to keep the feast, celebrate the Lord's Supper, worship with the, the fellowship of believers, what are you doing? You're getting up at o dark 30. You're going to somebody's house or even down into the catacombs underground, worshiping by candlelight, not because you like the ambiance, but because that's all you had, right? That's how you kept the feast. If you were going to worship the Lord, if you were going to be different. You were going to be weird. And as... as Christians today, we have that freedom to be weird too. And in the, the grace and the providence of God, we've got it good, you guys. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys are here. You not only show up for worship, you stick around for Bible study. So I, I'm glad for that, right? I understand I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. But it, it's something for us to take to heart and to recognize, wow, what a gift that we should be able to worship. In his little book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, 
that should not be taken for granted. The fact that we as Christians are able to worship together, that should not be taken for granted. It's a gift of God's grace. And it's not always been the case for God's people. Even in the the scripture, you think of the Apostle John, exiled to the island of Patmos, but still on the Lord's day, he was there with the the people of God. Those separated in body, gathered together in spirit. So, in, in each of these ways, we follow in the footsteps of Moses, still keeping the feast, sharing the faith that he had. All right, I just threw a lot out at you there about Moses and his example. Thoughts or comments, questions about, about him? Yeah, go ahead, Hans. No, no, I, just with you speaking, it's like, when, you know, you can substitute uh, for Rome the word American. Sure. And we probably should. Mm. Uh, because, as you said, uh, we tend to be privileged yeah. and think of it that way. And it's like, oh, that's how Romans used to think. It's like, yeah, sure. I have my uh, signet ring and stuff, I'm great. And, right. But, you know, we're, we're sort of in that same boat today. Yeah. Uh, one, um, Richard John Newhouse, who was a, a one-time Lutheran, later became a, a Catholic. <laughs> he went to Concordia Seminary, um, founded an a influential magazine called First Things, um, but the, the last book he wrote, I think it was the last book he wrote before he died, uh, and he was a very, uh, very con- conservative guy and at the forefront of a lot of these kinds of issues and so forth. Uh, but the last book he wrote was called American Babylon. And it was a, a call to Christians to recognize just the kind of things we've been talking about, that, you know, what, you know what, you're in America, you are a sojourner and you are an exile, right? There's things to be grateful for and not to take for granted but don't forget, you're, you're still in Rome. You're still a sojourner. You're still an outsider, even here. And uh, not, to, not to be surprised when things go against you. you know? This is something that Peter especially talks about. Do not be surprised when you encounter various trials, as though something strange is coming upon you. No, you should expect it. Jesus talks a lot about it. <laughs> it's going to come. It's going to happen. But instead, we have a faith that's fortified in, in the face of it. Yeah, that's a great point, Hans. Thanks. Yeah, Becky. I'm just thinking about all of these. I love a plan more than anybody <laughs> I know. If everything is just a book. As long as you have a good plan, everything's going to be okay. Yes, knock that stuff off the grid in an organized manner. But in all of these things, it doesn't make sense. Put your kid on an altar, um, run across a desert. God's plans are so weird. That I think sometimes we have trouble even supporting each other. Sure. If God has a call on your life and it seems kind of weird, you probably better still listen. Right. Um, my plan was to go to college. I got good grades, good ACT scores, English right. major, on my way to law school. You might notice I'm not there. Um, I, it didn't look good on paper, and it didn't bring in a lot of money. Um, it looked weird yep. to my mom and dad. Sure. Um, <laughs> to people in our church, there's no, there's no doubt I'm where I'm supposed to be. Right. But it looked weird. Yeah. It looked weird. And when other people have... I think we need to listen to each other when they say, I think I'm going to do something that makes no financial sense. Yeah. We ought to pray with that person. Because it might be the right thing to do. And that's hard for us. We're such a society of plans and doing the responsible thing. Yes. Yeah. 
uh, it's absolutely the case that so many times uh, the calling of God and following God just looks strange, and it looks like, why would you, why would you do that? Why would you do that? This is so often the way that God works. There's a, um, an author, Dan Heath, who says something that's a very different kind of context, but I think it applies here. He says, beware the soul-sucking force of reasonableness. <laughs> beware the soul-sucking force of reasonableness. And I think this is especially true when it comes to the life of faith. If everything always makes perfect sense, you better check yourself and say, wait a second, what, who am I following here? Right? Am I following? Like, if I'm just walking up the mountain and I've got all my sacrifices lined up and we've got, you know, the to-do list is, is right there, then maybe, maybe something's out of whack. That's not to say that we're just totally, utterly unreasonable, irrational people all the time, though we may be, but uh, that many times, following in the Lord's footsteps, we're going to be called to things that we're like, this is not what I had intended. This is not how I had it all laid out ahead of time. See? But let's keep following. As Connie often says, one step at a time, keep praying. Yeah, Carl. Uh, Abraham may, and, and, I, and I believe this, had been at a point in his life where truth no, wasn't weird. Hmm. And he wasn't a victim. Hmm. He was solid in what he understood and what he believed God wanted him to do. And the full trust came in that. In, in that you know, at... at uh, uh, I was reading, I did a book, on, I wrote a book called Age of Shame on the Holocaust. Hmm. And in that story, I found, you know, that uh, even though all of these, the Jewish people were, were killed, you know, uh, and many Christians and, and uh, other people were killed in this thing, that the greater good that God had in mind for them at that particular time was suddenly being met. You know, where Father forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, and became his children once again. But you know, this is a, this is a, a kind of a truth that uh, I think Abraham understood that in spite of whatever he was going to do to Isaac, Isaac was going to benefit from that much more than he was going to ever uh, lose. Hmm. So the greater good in this was that whatever that that was the truth. The truth became not weird, but became very solid mm. in his in his whole being, in mm -hmm. his mind, his body, his soul. His soul now had begun to take over his mind. Yeah, and at that point, uh, faith <clears throat> that does make sense, right? So there, from the outside, there can be a kind of unreasonableness about it, but that within the the heart of faith, there's a conviction. It says in Romans 12. Um, therefore, uh, um, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies up as living sacrifices. Weird, unreasonable, irrational. But then it says, which is your reasonable service? Logikos latreia, logikos, from which we get our word logic or logical. He's saying, in, in view of what God has done, offering up your body as a living sacrifice, which might not seem like a good idea from many perspectives. Says, no, that's actually the logical thing. What else would you do? It just fits with... The, the calling of God on our lives. So, yeah, thank you, Carl. All right, let's get to the, the last big movement of this. And this is where, as a preacher, I'm like, all right, now he's rocking and rolling. There's an old saying that you kind of, you, you start slow, and then you slowly build up, and then you catch fire, right? And this is where the preacher is catching fire. And so there, you can almost hear the kind of call and response starting with verse, uh, well, really with verse 32. He says, what more shall I say? And all the congregation, say more, preacher, say more. 
For time would fail me to tell a Gideon, Barak, Samson, don't forget about Jephthah, Jephthah of David, Samuel, the prophets, the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. No, sir. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Woo! But here's the takeaway. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Whew! It's a mouthful here. Now, the preacher, as the sermon reaches the crescendo, the preacher is trotting out all this host of witnesses. You know, maybe there's, there's that part in the back of the preacher's mind who's like, if I keep going at this pace like he was with Abraham and Moses, we're going to be here for a while. It's like, all right, now let's start giving more of the abridged version, right? You guys can go back later and find out about the guy who was sawn in two and all these sorts of things. Um, so he's, just start, he's bringing them all out. The Israelites crossing the Red Sea and circling Jericho. Rahab. The prostitute, for crying out loud, welcoming the spies, all the, the judges of Israel. David, of course, the faithful king, not the sinless king by any means, but Samuel, the model prophet, and so many more. And you can just imagine the hearers getting caught up in this and just thinking back nostalgically about, oh, man, this is so great. All those great heroes. I wish that I could have been among their number. All those great saints and heroes of the faith. And that's when the preacher stops. And he says, you think they were great? Guess what? They envy you. Because you are part of that unbroken chain of faith. Apart from you, they can't be made perfect. Because they need you to continue that chain. Never break that chain. I'm not going to start singing Fleetwood Mac here. But there's the... <laughs> The chain of faith that extends all into history. Um, I read this book uh, this past year by a guy named Andy Crouch. It's called The Life We're Looking For. And it's about kind of technology and, and personhood. But he provides a really provocative thought experiment in it. He says, you know, think about how a generation, roughly speaking, is like 20 years. It's like 20 years, okay? And how you can think in your own life, you know, you've seen your parents, your grandparents, maybe your great-grandparents. And think about that. Think about your great-grandparents. Say if you had ever met your great-grandparents, how they probably lived, what, during the Civil War, perhaps? They are at least a, the beginning of the last century. They lived at a time when there were no cars or computers. Somebody that you touched, perhaps, in your own life. And you, and before, before you are laid in the grave, perhaps you're going to see children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, who are going to extend to flying cars, maybe. <laughs> But those are just a few generations. You go back a, a, a few more generations, and the next thing you know, he, as he reckons it, within, I think he says, 14 or 18 um, generations of people, 
We're back in the time of, of Shakespeare and then of Luther. So imagine in our um, congregation today in the sanctuary, say we had about 100 people. We should probably do about 100 folks in the sanctuary. 101. Okay, there you go. <laughs> I don't count. Uh, perfect, okay. So Andy Crouch asks us to think about each generation as a person. Boom, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. That being the case, you and I are but 100 people 2,000 years from the time of our Lord. Think about that. If each person in that sanctuary this morning signified a generation, right there, you've got a, a chain that stretches back all the way to Jesus already. Suddenly doesn't seem so long, does it? So long ago. We now, to hear this sermon, it's been about that long, right? Maybe one or two fewer people in that chain from the time that the preacher was preaching. But now you and I are part of that unbroken chain. Because I know you said, as I've said, oh, if only I'd been there. If only I could have been part of Peter and James, little James, and John. If only I could have been walking in their footsteps. And if the preacher were here today, he'd say, but don't you see? You are. The chain is unbroken and continues to you and me still today. We get to be part of it and to pass it on to the next generation. What a gift. Two closing thoughts then on this powerful, beautiful chapter. One, number 11. Faith flourishes under the examples of saints, ordinary and extraordinary. Philippians 3.17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I think Paul's being very literal here. Look at, look to people whose lives you want to emulate. It's a very straightforward point, but it's one that I think we need to keep hearing. The, the people, the things that you are imbibing, the, the, whether it be folks on TV or the voices you're listening to, those are the ones that, like it or not, you're going to start to unconsciously emulate. Look at those whose faith and lives you want to emulate. See, Not the ones that get you excited or you know, get you angry, as is so often the case in our world today. But instead, look to and listen to the, whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is virtuous, Paul says in <laughs> Philippians 4. Consider those things. Look at those things. Ponder those things and those people. Because you're going to start following in their footsteps whether you mean to or not. So that's, that's another blessing that we have in the church. Look to one another, right? I want to follow in the footsteps of the faith of the people that I see in this room. That's what I want to look to. Those are the lives that I want to get to know better. And within our, our Lutheran confessions also, there's a, there's a section on the worship of saints, which it says, no, we don't worship the saints, but... Lutheran teaches, churches teach that the memory of saints may be set before us, that we may follow their faith and good works according to our calling. This week in the Inklings, I wrote about St. Patrick, right? To learn about these great heroes of the faith is a good thing for us, not because we're worshiping them, not because you're worshiping Martin Luther or Athanasius <coughs> or any of these, these great heroes in the history of the faith, but so that we might be spurred to, to walk in the same way that they did. There are only a few links in the chain and then secondly, <clears throat> finally, as we live in exile, pilgrims and sojourners, we keep alive the flame of divine discontent. 
We don't forget the fact that we haven't received the inheritance, not in full, not yet. Ecclesiastes 3 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has placed eternity into our hearts. We have that longing for home. We're not there yet, and so it's appropriate to feel homesick, to keep alive that divine discontent, because a day is coming, and maybe today, when the bridegroom will have all prepared. He'll come back and say, time for the feast. Amen? Amen. All right. Thanks very much, guys. Next week, we'll continue with Hebrews chapter 12.